Welcome back to Bible Time. We have been um, in the first chapter of Thessalonians. We were planning on moving on to the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Um, But we're going to look at a phrase from um, Colossians again that ties in with one of the concepts we've been looking at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll also be in Ephesians and Corinthians. Um, the, the subject today is going to be the root of idolatry, the root of idolatry. Where does idolatry come from? We made the um, case through the scriptures that America is given over to idolatry, and we showed how the ev- what the evidence of idolatry is, and we showed that America is given over to idolatry by showing the evidence of idolatry. Though you cannot see physical idols, Um, all across this land like you could see in Jerusalem whenever the prophets were preaching against the idolatry in the times of Manasseh and the times of Zedekiah and other kings of, of, of Judea. Though these idols are not there like they were in Dan and Beersheba, golden calves that men are offering sacrifices to, nevertheless, we are overrun with idols. And so we're going to look at the root of idolatry. What, where does idolatry come from? Where does it begin at? If you can get the down to the root of an issue, then you can get rid of the issue. A lot of times what happens whenever people are trying to fight an issue is that they'll, they'll be attacking the top of the plant instead of going all the way down to the root and taking it out. Now, and we're going to look today at the root of idolatry. We're going to start in Colossians 3, 5 and go from there. Here he says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And covetousness which is idolatry. Father, in Jesus' name, please help us to preach the word today. Lord, please use this for your glory. I pray that you'd be exalted and magnified, that your people would be loosed, Father, and that the lost would be saved. I pray that Satan would be bound, and Lord God, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So the root of idolatry then is covetousness. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll look at a second witness here. For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience." Did you notice the link between idolatry and covetousness? But even more seriously than the link between idolatry and covetousness is the statement that um, a person that is a covetous man, an idolater, um, cannot have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And he says, let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Now, the implications here are pretty extreme. That means that if America is given over to idolatry, as we have before shown, the clear evidence for such an accusation, if the United States of America and the churches thereof are given over to idolatry, then what we are actually stating here is that the churches of America and the people of America have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And that is what the Bible says, if it be true that this country be given over to these sins, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becometh saints. Now, covetousness is kind of like the sacred sin of America. It's the sin that we refuse to call sin, the sin that we refuse to admit as sin. We dress it up and we give it all kinds of fancy names. We call it good stewardship in our churches. We call it um, being a being frugal. We call it being thrifty. Uh, We call it being wise and wise with our money. And we have all of these ways to justify our covetousness in this land, but God doesn't buy it. Uh, Brother Michael was preaching last night in the tent. Brother Michael, I should say, I kind of mumbled that. Brother Michael was preaching last night in the tent that you don't get to change God's righteousness just because you say so. God is righteous and his word is true no matter what you think about it. Now, 
this covetousness that is the root of idolatry here. He says, for this you know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous person who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This covetousness is a is basically nothing more than a earnest desire for something. And what makes that covetous a wicked covetousness is when you desire something that God has not given to you, but God has given to another. Now in this land of opportunity, people can pretty much go out there and get a um, work really hard and better themselves, get a better job, get a better um, opportunity. For the most part, most people have um, a lot of opportunity uh, opportunity in this land and could go out and better themselves and get more. And so we justify our covetousness with the fact that if you work hard, you can buy things for yourself. And that does not change the heart motive of the covetousness. And we're going to look at that from, from the Bible today. Now, between my stumbling and mumbling and the odious nature of this discussion, I'm sure many of you will be tempted to shut this off and maybe already have, but I just ask you to stick in there and listen to what the Bible has to say about this root of idolatry. Now, we'll look at those verses again in a minute so you can hold your place if you like to. Why do some people serve God and some people do not? Why do some churches thrive well, other churches barely survive. Now, obviously, when we say thrive, we're talking about a huge building that cost millions of dollars and a huge, wonderful sound system and lights and, and fog and all these things and a big music set and worship leaders and masses of people dancing around in the aisles and swaying back and forth to repetitious songs that have no doctrinal foundation and can be applied to any Jesus that you carve out in your own imagination. Oh, oh wait, or are we? No, we're not. Thriving biblically is obviously different from thriving um, in the world's eyes. Now, if you look at our text in 1 Thessalonians, and remember that again, um, the Thessalonian church um, had showed what an entering in we had unto them. Look at verse 9, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, when we read in 1 Thessalonians, we were, we made note that this church had been born in trouble. This church had only had three weeks, three Sabbath days of reasoning from the scripture before this church was born by the Holy Spirit of God in spite of a complete lack of all infrastructure and all planning and all administration and all human governance, this church was birthed out of a time of trouble. Not only was this church birthed out of a time of trouble, but this church became um, persecuted immediately and was continually persecuted as they tried to grow. But in spite of this, they stood fast and they sounded out the gospel and they became in samples to all in Achaia and Macedonia. And as Paul said, in all parts. So not only was this church birthed by the Holy Ghost without any human interference other than a few weeks of preaching from the apostle Paul, but this church became a powerhouse for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ, a sounding forth, a, a place where the gospel was sounded out and launched out and blasted out throughout the whole region. And they did it without a denomination. They did it without seminaries. They did it without um, a bunch of fundraisers. They did it without a fancy building. They did it without any electronics at all. They did it without any offices to put their pastors in. They did it without any discernible, um, really, structure other than that we know that God raised up pastors in that church because God always does that in his churches, and that's what Paul said to do. He said to ordain elders in every city. So doubtless they had ordained pastors who were following the will of God, but who knows how soon they got them in that process. The reality is that Christ is the head of the church, and the success of this church of Thessalonica was not linked to their, to their money. It wasn't linked to their membership. It wasn't linked to their success in getting engagement with their community. It wasn't linked to any kind of advertising campaign. It wasn't linked to a food pantry. 
It wasn't linked to faith promise missions. It wasn't linked to a um, having a treasurer and Robert's Rules of Orders and being um, 501c3 incorporated so that people can give tax-deductible gifts to your church. Um, it had nothing to do with any of that. The only success that you can uh, that you can even the only credit that you can give for the success of the Church of Thessalonica was the headship and authority of Jesus Christ and the reality of the Thessalonicans' position in. Christ, that they understood that Christ was their head, they got under his head, and they followed their head, and they obeyed their head, and they did what their head said to do. Now that's a novel thought, isn't it? What do you call somebody whose hands and feet will not do what the head tells them to do? A quadriplegic, that's right. Somebody that is stuck in a wheelchair, their hands will not do what their head tells them to do, their feet will not do what their head, what their head tells them to do, and we call that person a quadriplegic. There's one in particular I can think of. Um, a young lady was di- diving, and she jumped out into the water, and her head struck a submerged object that she didn't know was there, and it snapped her neck, and she was placed in a wheelchair, and has spent the rest of her life in a wheelchair very um, intelligent woman, a very skilled woman. She learned to paint with her teeth. She would hold the paintbrush in her teeth and could paint better paintings than I can paint. You say, well, that's not much to brag about. Yeah, I know that. But better paintings than a lot of people can paint, and she did it with her teeth. She was skilled. She was smart. It wasn't that her head wasn't there. It's that her head was disconnected from the rest of her body as far as the nervous system was concerned. So the body was not obeying the impulses being sent from the head. And when that happened, she became a quadriplegic and has spent the rest of her life in a wheelchair having to function without the use of her limbs. So that's a quadriplegic, somebody whose limbs are not um, connected through the nervous system to the, to the head, to the mind to that which can direct it. Now, the Thessalonican church was connected. They were under their um, leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ through the direct leading and impulses of the Holy Spirit of God, and they were a revived church. They were a church that was on fire. They were a church that was carrying the gospel. They were a church that was changing their entire region, and yet they were a church that was born in a time and a place of trouble. What is it that stifles the zeal of the new believer? Now, this is the successful church. We preached on that before. The Thessalonican church is the successful church. So whenever I spoke earlier about why some churches thrive and some barely survive, the church at Thessalonica is what I'm holding up to you as an example of thriving, whereas the um, mega churches of our day are those which I would say are barely surviving. The church of Laodicea. Oh, they're there and they've got the money and they've got the attendance, but they have none of God and they have forsaken the old paths. They've gone a new way. Now, I just have to say by and large, because I haven't been to every mega church, so I don't want to completely um, make an absolute statement that I, um, whenever I don't have the ability to substantiate it completely. But from what I've seen of every mega church I've ever seen, they've left the old paths. Now, what is it that stifles the zeal of the new believer? When somebody gets saved and they get close to God and they love the Lord Jesus Christ and they just want to serve the Lord with all their heart, and I'm not talking about false converts here today. There are those too, but I'm talking about true Christians and they're trying to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and, and they're active in the work of the ministry and they're busy and then all of a sudden they step out of this and they drop out of that and they sidestep this and next thing you know they're barely coming to church and maybe even even in a little while, they find themselves completely out of church and on the back burner, or maybe they end up sliding out to some kind of church where they can just sit there and not really be held accountable for anything and not really be active in any work that matters. What happens to people? What is it that stops the advance of the gospel? What is it that prevents the sending out of laborers to the harvest fields? What is it that kills revival? We've heard many times of great revivals that have swept the land, but then we, every time we hear of them, a new tale of revival. You go back to the prayer revival in the 1800s and then later the revivals during the days of D.L. Moody in the late 1800s. Go back to the 1830s. Whether you like it or not, Charles Finney was used by God there and there was a great revival in the United States of America 
And during that time, God used Charles Finney mightily. Before that, in the 1740s, you have the Great Awakening. But wait a second. If there's all these revivals, then there had to be a stop to the revival. There had to be a slowing down. There had to be a dying out. There had to be a burning out. If we have to pray, revive us again, O Lord, that thy people may rejoice in thee, then that implies that we are no longer revived. And if God revived us and yet we need revived today, then that implies that we are no longer revived. Do you follow that? So if there has been a declension, if there has been a digression in the state of religion, as used the way the Bible uses it, if there has been a change where to, for the worse in the basic understanding of people's um, following of Jesus Christ and the advance of the gospel, what caused it? What caused revival to die? Now, the Bible says that covetousness, which is idolatry there in Colossians, covetousness is idolatry. It gives us the second witness in Ephesians, which we looked at, that a covetous man is an idolater. And then there's another verse there. Oh, I didn't write it down. I'll have to find it later um, and try and get it. It's in 1 Corinthians. There's another verse that says the same thing about the covetous not inheriting the kingdom of God. Now go to Exodus chapter 20 real quickly. Exodus chapter 20. And verse 17, we'll find the last of the Ten Commandments spoken by God audibly from heaven on Mount Sinai in the presence of the children of Israel where the whole multitude, not only of the Jews, but also of the mixed multitude that had gone up from Egypt with them, all heard God say these laws with their own ears. It terrified them. Read the context. You'll find out that that is true in spite of all of the false renditions of it in Hollywood. And I'm telling you, if you watch a bunch of movies about the Bible, you will be your, your doctrine will get screwed up. It will get messed up. You need to be in the word of God. You don't need man's interpretation of the word of God. You need the word of God. Now, um, let's see here. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. This is verse 17. Thou nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now in the New Testament, the Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul speaking, I believe in 1 Corinthians says, covet earnestly the best gifts. So in that sense of coveting a place of usefulness for God, Paul uses the word covet in a positive sense. But the word covet here, when linked to something that God has not given you, is a negative thing. And here in Exodus 20, it's linked to thy neighbor. Covet not, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, neighbor's wife, neighbor's manservant, neighbor's maidservant, neighbor's ox, neighbor's ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor. To desire that which God has given to another is covetousness. Now, I don't really covet whenever I covet my neighbor's boat. I just want a boat like my neighbor's boat. I just It just elicits a desire to have a different boat that's like it, or maybe even better. Let me, let me prove to you that I'm not really covetous. I don't want his boat. I want a better one. And I only really had that desire birthed in my heart when I saw him pull out with his boat and head to the lake. And now I just, I just really want a boat, but I don't want his boat, so I'm not coveting. And so I'm going to take an extra job. And I'm going to work a part-time job and put in an extra 15 hours a week and save my money because I'm a good steward. I'm not going to go into debt. And I'm going to put my money back a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there, until I have enough money for the boat of my dreams. And now I finally got my boat and here I go to the lake with my boat that I have labored and desired and it wasn't covetousness in fact this is just evidence of a hard-working American who knows how to manage his money wisely and is a good steward of the resources that God gave him because I didn't go into debt and after all it is my money because I'm working hard and using my time to buy the things that I want and I deserve a little bit every now and then I mean I give my tithes to God I go to church you know I'm gonna go to the lake on the boat on Saturday, but I'll be back in time for Sunday, and on and on and on it goes. 
to look with longing on that which belongs to another and allow it to elicit desires for something that God has not given me is covetousness. Now, the reason that we fail to understand covetousness in the United States of America is because we fail to understand biblical ownership, the principle of biblical ownership. Now, covetousness is closely linked to greediness. Covetous is combated by the opposite of greediness, which is contentedness. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. Do you know what great gain means? Do you know what great gain means? There's an old saying that says small gains make heavy purses. But great gains, light purses, because they're few and far between. And I butchered it up. They said it a lot better than that. But they, say, they speak of that gain as profit. And that's what this is saying here is, it is profitability. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you were talking about the stock market, when there's a good stock market, they say it's a bull market. A bull market. Well, godliness with contentment, according to God, is bull. Do you hear me? It's a soaring market. It's an advancing market. It's an increasing value. Godliness with contentment. Now, worship, you say, wait a second, we're going all over the place. No, we're not. We're going right down a trail aimed dead at the root of idolatry, and we're going to get there if you hang on. Get your thinking cap on there. Open your heart to the Word of God. Ask God to show you your need and to take the covetousness out of your heart. Worship requires three things, at least three things. Here are three things I have identified from the word of God and from the study of the word. Meditation on the word. Worship requires three things. It requires time, it requires attention, and it requires resources. Time, attention, and resources. To give God your time is not worship all by itself. But to give God your time and your attention is beginning to get to worship. But the fact of the matter is, if you give God any decent amount of time and any direct and focused attention, it will inhibit your ability to make temporal gain. So worship requires time, attention, and resources. When your life is consumed with the pursuit of things... You do not have time, attention, or resources to give to God. Instead, your time, your attention, and your resources all go to your things. Now, what kind of things are you talking about? Well, how about a home, a house? When your life is consumed with the pursuit of a house, then you have no time for the things of God. Or a farm, or land, a vehicle, a boat, a job. When your time is consumed with the pursuit of love, Friendship, money, security, stability, stockpiles. How about guns and ammo? When your life is consumed with the pursuit of things, musical instruments, music itself, the study of music, the study for knowledge, um, erudition as they call it, which is a broad um, education in life. Um, if, though, if your life is consumed with the pursuit of things, listen to me carefully, you are a covetous person and you are an idolater. When your life is consumed with the pursuit of things, you say, wait a second, my family needs a house and my kids need a good place to grow. So, so we've got the farm so that we can all work together on the farm and we need some time off every now and then. So we've got to have the boat and we've got to have a little more land here and I've got to work a job to make my payments and I love my family. So I spend time with my family and we go out to the lake and, and maybe we just, we don't even spend much money. We just um, go out and roast some hot dogs every now and then and, and I've got to have some time for my friends and I need to save a little money so that so that I don't die um, of, of poverty and so that I'm not completely strapped and become a burden to everybody around me and end up, <coughs> end up on government support. I need some stability. My family needs some stability. Something bad might happen and you know the ants lay up for the winter and we ought to lay up for the winter too and that's good stewardship. And so I need to, I need to have some stuff in reserve and your life is consumed with the pursuit of things and your time and your attention and your resources are given to things instead of to God and to the advancement of the gospel, if this is the case, you are covetous and you are an idolater. 
Covetousness is not bad because the things are bad. Did you know that idolatry is not bad because the idol is bad? Isn't that what Paul said? He said the idol is nothing. The idol is nothing, but he said, it's the devils. He says that when the Gentiles sacrifice to idols, they sacrifice to devils. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. It's not the idol that makes the, um, the idolatry bad. It's the devils behind the idol. And it's not the land that makes having or a desire for land bad. It's not the farm that makes the desire for the farm bad. Those are not bad things. It's not your family that makes the desire to spend time with your family bad. It's whenever those things usurp the position of first place that Jesus Christ alone is supposed to have in your life. And whenever you no longer have the time, the attention, and the resources to pursue the cause of Christ and to follow Christ, and he's no longer your chief joy, he's no longer your chief hobby, he's he's no longer the main thing that you're involved with, you are a covetous person, and you are an idolater. Did you know that you can make an idol out of a charity? You could have an idol out of feeding poor people. You can make an idol out of your self-image of religiosity. And you can make an idol out of your pulpit, pastors. You can make an idol out of your pulpit and you worship and serve that pulpit. And you put all your time and your attention and your resources into trying to make the greatest messages that you can possibly make and trying to amass more fame and get more people to hear you. Instead of giving God your time, your attention and your resources, you say, I just don't see that. Well, that's because you're a Laodicean idolater. You see, the Laodiceans are the ones that say that they're rich. Just listen to the message from Michael Kime last night. I hope we can get a decent recording of it up. We had some technical issues with the mic, but that'll be posted online. You can listen to his message about the Laodicean church. If you are a Laodicean, you've got problems and don't know it. And you just don't see it that way. You ever tell the preacher, I just don't see it that way. I just don't see it that way. That's because you're a Laodicean. Laodiceans don't see anything that way. They don't see anything they don't want to see because they're busy being Laodiceans, rich and increased with goods and having need of nothing. Well, God says you're blind and wretched and naked and miserable. Now, the root of idolatry is covetousness. When your life shifts from a pursuit of the almighty God to a pursuit of things, you are covetous. Go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 45. I want to, to show you whenever God first started the New Testament church, I want to show you their utter freedom from freedom from covetousness. And by the way, um, if you look at the lives of men that God used mightily, they were every one of them free from covetousness. God has never used a covetous man and he never will. Now, he has used men who have become covetous, but then you can watch them fall like a meteor from the sky. Covetousness is the root of idolatry and it destroys our zeal. It destroys our ability to follow God. Acts chapter 2 and verse 45. It says, And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, revival is a return to Pentecost when the power of God fell from heaven and began the New Testament church. There will never be a, what is Pentecost, 50 or is it 70? It's a number. I can't remember right now. And I didn't look it up, but it's a number. And it's the number of days after the Passover. That's the feast. Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament. And that feast is celebrated so many days after Passover. And there was only one day that was that many days after Christ died. And there never will be another day that was that many days after Christ died. So there was the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. And there never will be another day of Pentecost. And there never can be. But the blessings and the power of Pentecost are still with us and can go forward and will go forward until Christ um, until Christ takes his church out of this world. So that, that concept of revival then is a return to the power 
power and effectiveness that God poured out on his church, the fullness of the spirit and the power to be his witnesses, the boldness and the effectiveness of the gospel that God blessed the church with on the day of Pentecost. That is what revival is. When we say revive us again, oh God, when we say we need revival, we might not know what it means. We might mean something different, but to God, what revival means is a return of the church to the power that birthed it. That is what it's all about. That is what revival is about. Now, revival um, always brings with it a freedom from covetousness. And revival will bring with it a giving spirit. Every time God moves mightily and has moved mightily, there is a freedom that God's people experience from covetousness because they have a sense of the nearness of the Almighty. They have a sense of the eternal. And suddenly the things of this temporal life grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And their, and their pocketbooks open up. And their hearts open up and their pantries open up and their hands open up and they begin to give first themselves and then also of what they possess to the work of the Lord. Now, there's a bunch of charlatans out there that are trying to steal your money that are a bunch of stinking thieves and... Oh, Lord, help me not to get in the flesh. But there are a bunch of thieves that want to steal your money, and they'll go out there and try and pretend like they have revival because they know this fact. And they know that if they can get you to think that there's revival and think that you're in the presence of the Almighty and be amazed by their miracles and signs and lying wonders and think that they're prophets who are giving you revelation, that it will open your pocketbooks. Because there's something about revival that opens people's pocketbooks. So it's big money for these charlatans who run around to extort people and propagate a false revival with a false fire. That's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about a true move of Almighty God. And when that happens, God looses through his people the cattle that he owns on a thousand hills. Let me ask you a question. If God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, uh, what happens if you end up with a land dispute with God and accidentally buy his land and put your cows on his land? What if God has an easement through your land and you don't know about it and build a barn? Now, you think I've gone off the deep end and that's ludicrous, but I want to tell you something today. The Bible's literal, and when it says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it means it. Where are the thousand hills that God owns? You should be rubbing your nose like the natives in Papua New Guinea and thinking hard here, lest you be stealing God's pineapples. Go get Otto Koning's pineapple story. This will help you. It has to do with a lot of what we're talking about here today. He has several messages that deal with this concept um, of yielding rights and of ownership. Um, so I recommend recommend that to you. And his natives would rub their noses when they thought. And they got in such a terrible problem one day because Otto Koning gave his pineapples to God and they couldn't figure out what to do because they didn't know how to steal God's pineapples. And they didn't really want to steal God's pineapples because they had a fear of God. Thank the Lord. And it led to an opening of the gospel in that area. But in any case, whose hills, where are the hills God owns? Does the realty company down here have a shot at brokering God's land? He's got a thousand hills to sell. I mean, you could put a real good development up there. Listen to me today. The thousand hills that God owns cattle on are the hills of the whole world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He said, if I were hungry, I would not ask you. He says, every beast of the field is mine. Every beast of the field is mine. Your cows belong to God. Your horses belong to God. Your dogs belong to God. Your chickens belong to God. Your real estate belongs to God. The trees that were cut down to make your house belong to God. The iron ore in the ground that was mined out to make iron and steel to build your products and build the car that you're driving come from God's earth. They are his resources. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We're talking about ownership here today to strike at the root of idolatry, which is covetousness. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The whole earth, every cow. Oh, you said you went to auction and bought that cow. Well, let me, I've got news for you. It was God's cow. 
You say, but I bought it. Oh, now we're getting to where rubber really meets the road. You see, it's all God's, but God has also given man a stewardship of the world. Go back to the book of Genesis where God told Adam to have dominion over the earth. I know a man that um, for years has maintained that personal property is unbiblical and the man is unbiblical and he doesn't know his Bible half as much as he thinks he does. And guess what happened to that man? He ended up out of church. Go figure. He knew more than everybody else about the Bible, even though he didn't know the Bible. So then he couldn't agree with anybody and ended up out on his own. And that's what usually happens in such a case. But the Bible teaches personal property. Here in the book of Acts, it says, neither said they that any of the things that they possessed were their own. It says, and they sold their possessions. Wait a second. If they had things common and said that nothing that they possessed was their own, how could they sell it? You see, here's the, here's the key to this whole thing. Let's look at, turn to Acts 44, um, verse 32. Acts 4, verse 32. The key is that God still recognized their property as their property, but they did not hold the right to use their property for their personal gain, even though it was still in their name, else they could not have sold it. Come on. All right, so Acts chapter 4, down here in verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed. In the same verse, you have them saying, not of the things that they possessed was his own, but they had all things common. So in the same verse, you have personal property ownership, and yet you have yielded possessions to God so that they had all things common. That having all things common did not mean that Ananias and Sapphira got to sell Barnabas's land. Did you hear me today? Barnabas still had the title, but he did not count the title as his own. A lot of people think that this is socialism, and it's nothing like it. Socialism takes what man possesses and says, nothing you possess is your own. Christianity gives what I possess and says, nothing that I possess is my own. The, the biblical principle of ownership is why this works and why this worked in the book of Acts. Some people say, well, it didn't work. Well, hold on. Just hold on to that thought. Don't let the world redefine things for you. I'm going to show you from the Bible that it did work just exactly the way God wanted it to work. You see, they were under, here in the book of Acts, just like the Thessalonican church, they were under the headship and authority of Jesus Christ. And they were operating with Christ as the head who was sending directives through the nervous system, the Holy Spirit of God sending the impulses to his people to tell them what to do, and they were being obedient to it. Now, ownership in the Bible is the understanding that God owns everything and that I am a caretaker of those possessions that God has allowed me to use and that I will be required by God to give account for how I used everything he gave me. My couch, my chair, my house, my car, nothing that I have. The shirt on my back, nothing that I have is mine. It belongs to God. And in a time of revival, and we're seeking revival, and whenever we have revival and we're filled with the Spirit, we no longer see the things that we possess as our own. But we don't see it as belonging to Uncle Sam, the government. We don't see it as belonging to the chief elder at the church. We don't see it as belonging to the Vatican. We see it as belonging to God. And if it belongs to God and I'm in tune to God, then my pantry is open, my pocket is open, my hands are open, my home is open, my heart is open to give to them that ask of me. Now, when a man asked Peter and John uh, to give alms, they said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. How could they say that? They had eaten that day. It's because they had all things common and they had given of what they had. Now, they particularly had nothing. They were on full salary, full-time support by the church, and it was men like Barnabas selling their land that was keeping them eating every day. They did not have any money to give. Now, you can go read Corbin and the whole thing about saying that what you have is God so that you don't have to give to the needy and you don't have to give to God's work if you're 
one of those hypocritical, self-righteous, idolatrous, covetous Pharisees. But to the rest of you out there that are um, sincere in your desire to serve God, we need to move on here. So we're going to skip that. God recognized their property as theirs, and they recognized their property as God's. Now, ultimately, this fostered a spirit of Christian love and unity because they each looked to the needs of others. God was the owner of all that they possessed, and this did work. Look at the book of Acts. The church grew, and it flourished, and great grace was upon them all. Some people cite the poverty of the church of Jerusalem in the later epistles whenever Paul would ask the churches to send gifts to the poor church in Jerusalem. They used that as proof that this liberality in Acts chapter 1 through 4, it was self-destruction. And they say, see, look, and this and people that I love will even say they got socialistic and they messed up. They listen, I respectfully disagree with anyone that says that they did not ever get socialistic. Socialistic takes what is mine to give to some to give to themselves ultimately, but in the name of giving to others, Christianity gives what is mine and freely voluntarily the church at jerusalem never did that in acts chapter 5 peter told ananias and sapphira whilst it was thine own was it not in thine own power he says after it was sold was it not in thine own power the church did not demand it the church did not take it these were gifts that were freely given and why were they freely given so that the apostles could sit around and smoke hemp in hammocks? Absolutely not. So that they could continue in the prayer and the ministry of the word that they said that they gave themselves continually to. And there were many people there studying the word of God, preaching the gospel. The church was on fire. The work had to go forward, but it takes money to live. And in order to finance the work of God and the furtherance of the gospel, these people were selling their possessions and saying not that it was their own because they had view of a higher goal they had view of something greater than temporal possessions and this always happens in times of revival now if you look at acts chapter 8 i'll give you some more proof of the fact that this worked acts chapter 8 the bible says and saul was consenting unto his death and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at jerusalem and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of judea and samaria except the apostles so here's a huge great persecution that arises let me ask you something whenever you are called a criminal by a tyrannical government and they say that they want to kill you because of what you believe and you leave the country do they protect your goods for you do they keep your business running for you do they protect your personal property rights and put a special file in the file cabinet that says this land belonged to Barnabas the son of consolation the hated convict who's turning the world upside down and no one may possess it sell it or do anything else because we respect the rights of this individual absolutely not Listen to me, if Barnabas had not sold his land, he would have had it confiscated. And God knew that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It was God's land. And God prompted Barnabas to sell it and give the money to the advancement of the gospel. And when Barnabas obeyed God, the gospel went forward. When Barnabas obeyed God, the gospel was advanced. When Barnabas obeyed God, he became a poor Christian with no place to lay his head. He became a deadbeat someone that wasn't even earning his own living but guess what when the when the christians had their land seized who hadn't given it up barnabas didn't have anything to steal and god knew what was coming god knows whether you should keep your farm or sell your farm he knows whether you should build your business or sell your business the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof the concept of ownership and the understanding and submission to the ownership of almighty god to everything that i possess is the antidote to the viper's venom of covetousness ownership the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Second Corinthians, go there quickly, chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Just a couple more passages of Scripture to go over. Excuse me. But maybe a few more verses in these. Second Corinthians chapter 8. 
Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. You see, if you want to say that the, what God did and what, what the early church did in selling their possessions and giving them was a mistake, then you must also explain to me why the Apostle Paul is holding up these poor churches in Macedonia who are giving out of the abundance of their hearts and their deep poverty. Is this a mistake too? Absolutely not. None of it was a mistake. He says here, for to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord. That's ownership. And unto us by the will of God. This is not willy nilly giving. This is not buying a prayer hanky for a thousand dollars and putting under your pillow and hoping you win the lottery. This is somebody giving of themselves to God, understanding that not only they, but everything they possess belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and giving first of themselves and then of everything that they possess as God wills it. They won't do it unless they're in touch with God. The fact that they gave of themselves to the, to the Lord was followed by the fact that they gave of their possessions, and you'll never see it any other way. If, they had, if these people had kept their houses back there in Jerusalem, remember, they would have lost them. And God knows what's coming in the future, even whenever you don't. He says here, uh, going back to our text again, insomuch that we desired Titus, we're in verse 6, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, seeing that ye ab- see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, lest you should be deceived and think that Paul was a socialist, socialist and telling them to give um, out of their out of his will, he says, "I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Oh, that can't possibly be God's will for my life. There's no way that God would want me to become poor to help." spread the gospel. There's no way. If I give, the, everybody knows that if I give, you can't give out, out give God. So if I give, God's going to give me more back and I'm going to get more rich. So if I give God the money I was going to spend on a Corvette, I can expect to get two later. And if it doesn't pan out that way, I'm going to put a tight clenched fist around my money. Oh, I, I'll give to God's work, but as long as I maintain my retirement fund and my securities and my savings, listen to me, you're covetous. If you're holding back from God, you are covetous. And I didn't say if you're holding back from me, I don't want it. I'm not asking for it. God is my provider and God will give me what I need. I'm just telling you, if you're holding on to your possessions and if you've got your fist around your possessions and you have not given first yourself and then everything you possess to God, you're covetous. And if you are covetous, you are an idolater. And if you are an idolater, you're in dangerous ground because idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of heaven and neither will the covetous. A true Christian cannot live a life of covetousness and idolatry because God will chasten them and break them. And if you listen to Brother Otto Koning's messages, he gives a testimony in there of a man who tried to be covetous, tried to be idolaters, tried to heap together riches, and God never would let him, and God doesn't let his Christians do it. He chastens them when they do it to the degree that you rebel against God and hoard your resources is the degree that you will lose your peace, lose your joy, lose your effectiveness for God and miss out on the blessing of seeing God's work go forward. A man once said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That man gave his life on the mission field. Another man said only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that man gave his multi-million dollar in our economy, multi-multi-million dollar inheritance. He gave to various ministries and missions and himself went into faith 
missions with almost nothing to his name and eventually went without even a penny to his name into the heart of Africa to start a mission. And you would call that foolish, sir. You're covetous. You're an idolater if you call that foolish. That man gave something he could not keep to get something he could not lose. Jesus said, he that saveth his life shall lose it, and he that loveth his life for my sake and the gospel shall find it. God doesn't need your money because he or for one thing because he already owns it all. And he can take it from you just as fast as he wants to. He doesn't have to get your permission to take it. He doesn't have to let it trickle down slowly. He can take it like that. He can take it in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. God can take every dollar you possess and he can do it and be just because he owns it already. You say, I worked hard for that money. Whose minerals strengthened your body? Whose um, whose food did you eat to grow to a point? Whose brain did you use? Whose air did you breathe? Whose hands did you work with? You say, they're my hands, but who gave them to you? Who gave you life and breath and everything you possess? You do not own anything. Not even the skin on your body is yours to possess. It belongs to the almighty God, the creator of the universe who took the dust and formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, a living soul. You belong to God and everything that you own belongs to God, whether you acknowledge it or not. Therefore, if God wills for you to do one thing with your possessions and you do another thing with your possessions, you are not only in rebellion to almighty God, but you are evidencing a yearning desire for something that God has not given you because even though it's in your bank account, it's not yours. And if you go and spend it on what you want instead of what God wants, you are a thief. You are covetousness. You are a coveter. You are an idolater. And you've placed God above yourself or yourself above God. God's purpose for temporal possessions is the furtherance of the gospel. All business is side business to the saint. If God wants you to build bulldozers, build bulldozers. But you better be real sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God with what you do with your business and what you do with your resources and what you do with your time. You say, the Bible says to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I amass wealth to myself and I go to work and work hard long hours and I have my savings account and my um, 401k and my IRA and, and my this and my that and I've got my stocks and my bonds and I've got my all my possessions and the things that I enjoy. I've got my lake house. I've got my boat. I've got all these things because I work so hard and I'm being a good steward of them so that I won't be a burden to other people. You're a liar. You are a liar. If that's your purpose so that you won't be a burden to other people, you're the man that is hiding the talent that God gave you in the dirt. You're saying, okay, God, here is what you gave me. None of it is lacking. I haven't given of it to any of your work. So it's all still here, God. It's here in my savings account. I didn't want to be a burden. I knew that thou wert an austere man, reaping where thou didst not sow, gathering where thou didst not plant, and here is what is thine. Have it back. I'm dying, and I'm going to will it to God. I'm going to will it now that I know that I've been secure, now that I know that I have lived well on this earth, now that I know that I've been fed well and my belly is full at the end of my life, I'm going to give the remains of what I have to God. God's not interested in that. Now, I'm not saying that that might not be what God would have you to do, but God's not interested in you living your life on his money, in your comfort and your comfort zone, and doing nothing to advance his gospel and nothing to show your adoration and worship for the son of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and then dying and giving the last few pennies that you have left. If there's anything left after your hospice and nursing home and everything else to some ministry that's sick in God's nostrils. Now, all business is side business to the saint. All business should point to the advancement of the gospel. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You think I'm extreme? I'm reading you Bible. I'm giving you Bible principles today. And this is the truth of the word of God. Philippians 3 and verse 7. 
Philippians 3 and verse 7, but what things were gained to me, says the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness of God, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. All our time, all our resources, all our attention belongs to God. You don't get me time. Do you hear me today? You don't get me time. You don't deserve me time. If you need some time because you're frazzled, get in the word of God. Read the Bible. Seek him and listen to me today. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to go on a walk with a loved one. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to go swimming in a lake with your kids every now and then. But you better know it was God that led you to do that. And you better be giving all your time, all your attention, all your resources to God. And when you do that, God will provide for some of those basic human needs sometimes for some weaker Christians that I often fall into that category you go read the life of Adoniram Judson read, read the life of Hudson Ch- Taylor read the life of D.L. Moody read the life of men that God used mightily read the life of the Apostle Paul who says they that are married should be as though they are not married He wasn't saying don't love your spouse, but he was saying your love for God should so transcend your spouse and your love for your spouse that your, as Christ said, your love for them would seem as hate to the world. He said, if any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, sister, brother, he cannot be my disciple. And the world will say, you're not laying up for your children. The world will say, you need a better savings account. The Lord will say, you need a better house to live in. The world will say, the world will say to you, you need to make sure that um, if you die, that your wife is provided for. You need to be making better provisions. You need to be laying up stuff. You need to be taking more care. And God says... He that saves his life will lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall find it. You don't find any of those doctrines in the word of God without twisting the scriptures and resting the scriptures and making false application. And we've got plenty of that out there. If you're interested in that kind of teaching, just pull up YouTube and look for financial principles from the Bible. Do a search on it, and you can fill your head with all the justifications of rested scripture by the mouths of covetous false prophets who will teach you how you can manage your money and be a wise steward and live however you want and deny Christ by your life. But for those of you that want to serve God, those of you that want to have the revival fire burning in your bosom, those of you that want to see the gospel advance, those of you that love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, and thy strength, give everything you are and everything you possess to Christ and obey him when he tells you what to do with it. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would loose us from covetousness, which is idolatry. Lord, that you loose me from it, Lord. Lord, loose us, Father. We pray, Lord, that your scriptures that we have read today and and looked at today would be um, a hammer to break the rock and a sword, Lord God, cutting through the root of covetousness in our hearts, Father, the root of idolatry that kills our zeal and kills our desire and kills our, our profitability for the kingdom of God. Lord, help us to invest everything that we are and everything that we possess in the cause of your dear son, Jesus Christ. Help us to hold nothing back, to keep back no part of the price. And Lord, if we, like the Apostle Paul, have nothing left but a few parchments and a cloak at the end of our life, it will be enough, Lord. As long as you go with us, please take us, Father. Lead us, guide us, Lord. Use us up for Christ. Like the man said down there in Florida, Father, we just pray that you'd use us up like a bar of soap. There doesn't need to be anything left when you're done with us, Father. And you know what we need so we can trust you and we can just keep on spending and being spent for Christ and trust you that you'll make up the difference and you'll get us where we need to go. You'll provide for us. You promised to. You said you would, and we trust you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Help us to march ever onward, ever forward for Jesus Christ. In his holy and precious name we pray, amen.